This show may contain offensive material, but that's not what I'm here to talk about. I mean, it's true. I'm here to talk about another show, which might also contain offensive material. It's my live show, Tuesday, November 28th. It's called Pesca on the Potomac. I'll be at the Hamilton Theater in Washington, D.C. An amazing and random lineup of guests, including Chris Malamphy, Alexandra Petri of the Washington Post, Perry Bacon Jr. of 538, actress Holly Twyford of The Stage, and Benjamin Wittes of Lawfare. Hamilton Theater, Tuesday, November 28th. On with the show and perhaps trace amounts of obscenity. It's Tuesday, November 21st, 2017. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. More and more allegations of abuse and harassment are coming out. And in fact, we've gotten to the point where not only do we have the names of the abusers and their misdeeds, but we have little nicknames for some of their methods of abuse or sometimes the defense mechanisms deployed to try to stave off abuse. In the Charlie Rose story in the Washington Post, there was a reference to the crusty paw. That was a Charlie Rose patented move where he would grab or grope a young underling. It was known as, twas known as the crusty paw. Sounds like an O. Henry story. No, I'm going to amend that. Poe, definitely Poe. And then John Lasseter of Pixar, the honcho behind Toy Stories and Cars. Within uh, the Pixar culture, the women deployed a move known as the Lasseter. And the Lasseter would be where you would put your hand on your own thigh if you found yourself sitting next to John Lasseter, lest he take control of that real estate by himself. So this is good, I guess. We can't really defend it. We can't really have a conversation about it. But we can give all this shit good nicknames. It's progress. Is that progress? I don't know. You see your friend, another young female journalist, cornered in a booth with a boozy New York Times White House correspondent? That's when you use the thrush bum rush. You see the senator from Minnesota, how entitled he is to grab women on their butts? Do you know why that is? Yes, you've never heard of the Franken privilege? It's there, right there. And of course, the nickname that will soon be bestowed upon Harvey Weinstein, and that will be, and this is cute and pithy, criminal defendant 5278349. By the way, I feel a little bad. We can't look away from this. We shouldn't be looking away from this. This is totally news. It's, it's not not news. Just like the assault on net neutrality is not not news, right? It's news. I can't say it's not news. I can't say that Trump's fit of peak against AT&T over the acquisition of Time Warner because it doesn't like CNN. Again, that's not not news. That is news. But the big, huge news is the tax bill. It's the biggest issue in America. It also incorporates health care and it deals with our standard of living. It, it, the entire reason we pay attention to elections, Roy Moore, again, not not news. The reason we pay attention is so that once these officials get elected, they go to Washington and try to pass pieces of legislation. And if we don't pay attention to the pieces of legislation, what was the point about dickering about an election for months and months and months? So the Tax Policy Center has scored or given some estimates about the tax bill, and it noted a few things, as did the JCT, the Joint Committee on Taxation. And they note that by 2027, the average household earning between 20 and 40,000 would actually see a rise in taxes. And the estimates also say that 60% of families 
earning between 30 and 100,000 get a tax increase. You might see talking points about the average size of the tax break will be so many. That's because at the high end, the break is so big, it makes up for the averages. These are the kind of figures. And when the CBO came out with their scoring on the healthcare bills, it sunk all those bills. But they were in the public consciousness. And these are the kind of figures that should sink the tax bill if we could attend to the tax bill. And I hope we can. I hope it penetrates the public's consciousness. Perhaps you can do your part by printing out a bar chart to bring to the Thanksgiving table and to just slide it over to Uncle Stephen when he asks to pass the gravy. Oh, Uncle Stephen, you do have to take the sunset provision into account. On the show today, on the issue of Donald Trump's own accusers, I take a presidential talking point really, really seriously. It does not help their cause. But first, he is an MSNBC host who immersed himself in an election, but not the current one. Lawrence O'Donnell on the tumultuous, consequential, realigning election of 1968. The 1968 presidential election is one that political scientists call a realigning election. To the layman, it was just frickin' bananas. Chronicling this in his new book, Playing with Fire, the 1968 Election and the Transformation of American Politics, is MSNBC host Lawrence O'Donnell. Hello. Thanks for coming on. Great to be here. So 1968, the country was really coming apart at the seams. The Vietnam War was going badly, and the people were recognizing that it was going badly. Economically, unemployment wasn't that bad, but uh, the gross domestic product had actually cratered in 67. Things were coming to a head. But, and this is my observation gleaned from your book, it does seem that as bad as the background circumstance were, the people, the men who were tasked with managing this and leading the country were just not up to the job. No, because, of course, the establishment is the last to know when something new and important is happening. And that is definitely true in political parties. Democratic establishment, last to know. Uh, Republican establishment, last to know, as they proved last year. Uh, They didn't see Donald Trump coming. They didn't see Trumpism coming. And in 1968, we had uh, this development on the left side of the Democratic Party that we'd never seen before. Uh, And that was the emergence of the insurgent challenge from the left. And this was a challenge to the sitting president. Lyndon Johnson is the incumbent president who's supposed to get reelected easily. And his first challenge comes from Senator Eugene McCarthy in his own party, someone who LBJ had considered making his running mate four years earlier, (laughs) jumps up and uh, runs against Johnson, uh, runs against the way Johnson is running the Vietnam War. And McCarthy shocks the world by winning New Hampshire. Uh, That's the way it was, in effect, reported. In fact, McCarthy came in a strong second, but against an incumbent president, that felt like winning to everyone, including LBJ and Gene McCarthy and Bobby Kennedy, who was then lured into the race because of Gene McCarthy's success. Now, McCarthy, obviously, you make the parallels or one is inevitably going to make parallels to the present. And my questions are definitely going to reflect that. But 
to compare him to the insurgent challenger from the left this time around, Bernie Sanders, I think maybe McCarthy pales in comparison. He seems so up in his head and he was being led by the movement, it would seem, rather than leading the movement. Gene McCarthy was the first anti-war candidate, not the first anti-war candidate of 1968, the first anti-war candidate in history, running against a war that was being conducted at the time. We'd never had that before. Uh, There was no model for Bernie Sanders to do what he did uh, prior to the Gene McCarthy model. And the history of those insurgencies is they usually end up where Gene McCarthy's did and where Bernie Sanders's did. Uh, No one dreamed that this poet senator, this guy who literally would avoid Senate business by staying in his hideaway in the Senate writing poetry, that that guy would destroy Lyndon Johnson, but he did. I think that, though, as I was trying to compare him to Bernie, for all of Bernie's flaws, and he has them, chief among them, lack of a mastery of details, and, you know, Hillary Clinton could set your chapter and verse on that. He does seem authentic, whatever that word means, uh, idealistic, true to his ideals. There seems to me, through your book, through your reporting, a pettiness at times to McCarthy where he would snidely crack jokes at the Kennedy's expense in the Senate uh, press chambers rather than actually working hard as a senator. I don't know of too many instances where people said during Bernie's career, you know, he's checked out and just not into the job. I had heard from the older senators just here and there that Gene McCarthy was not well-liked. Since I worked in the Senate in in the late 1980s, 1990s, I never really probed it uh, until I worked on this book. And that imperfection, some of that pettiness, that, that he was petty, some of that pettiness that you're talking about is actually what stood between him and ultimate success as a presidential candidate. He had so much Uh, that could lead him to success as a presidential candidate. But he did have personality weaknesses, character weaknesses that slowed him down when he needed to accelerate. And I saw those up close as I studied him in this. And other than the fact that if he had won, we would have had a better world, if you can leave that aside for the moment, uh, since we're stuck with the world we have. When I was studying the presentation of this man, just from a dramatist's perspective, I was kind of delighted to discover that he wasn't just a flat hero. He wasn't just a heroic man who stood up and tried to stop a war. There was a lot more to him that is identifiably human that we can all relate to, many of those things we have in ourselves. And he turns out to be this truly rich character, but the book is filled with rich characters. Nixon, when you study him, becomes more rich all the time. Lyndon Johnson, Bobby Kennedy, Gene McCarthy is just the one who starts the drama going. So let's talk about Bobby Kennedy, sainted Bobby Kennedy, martyred Bobby Kennedy. You know, Bill O'Reilly once told me that Bobby Kennedy was his political hero. O'Reilly told me this, you know, back when he was starting his Fox career, when he wanted to pretend that he wasn't a registered member of either party. But what was it about Bobby Kennedy? All right, in O'Reilly's case, he's Catholic. But what was it about Bobby Kennedy that transcended politics? Uh, I'm not of the school that Bobby Kennedy was able to transcend politics in the sense of reach over and get voters who weren't going to vote for someone who had Bobby Kennedy's positions. Uh-huh. Uh, and, I, and I think that's a mistake that a lot of people make. But what Bobby Kennedy did do was he brought an excitement to politics that had previously existed only in show business. Bobby Kennedy, not Jack Kennedy, was the first true 
celebrity candidate for president. And he was world famous as the grieving brother of the fallen older brother president who was assassinated. And so there was an emotion that reached out to Bobby Kennedy everywhere he went. Uh, there was an excitement about him. The crowds would lean forward just trying to touch the cuff of his pants as he's standing on a stage, just to touch him in any way. It was precisely, precisely the human reaction that we had seen for the Beatles when they came to America. It was what we saw. The first hint of this was what we saw audiences doing for Frank Sinatra uh, and then Elvis Presley. Uh, we'd never seen anything like that in politics before. And then the tremendous enthusiasm of the people who were supporting Bobby Kennedy's position, which by the time he was running, was to stop the war in Vietnam. And that was the most passionate cause that had ever animated a presidential campaign. The chaos, we talk all about the chaos of 1968, the backdrop of your entire book. I compare it to the last election, recent years. And again, now the present is a time of unrest and a time of disquiet. Yet if you look at the empirical measures, it shouldn't be. Unemployment's pretty good and could be better. And the economy's pretty good and could be better. And compared to the rest of the world, compared to history, people should be more contented than they are. Do you have, I mean, I talked to Edward Luce about it. He says that's really the most notable thing about the populist moment that's happening, that compared to every other time there was this fissure, a societal fissure, there's less of an, an empirical explanation for it. Do you, having immersed yourself as you have in 1968, do you have an explanation for why we're cracking up now? Well, Trump is a resentment candidate. He he is nurtured by resentment and he expresses resentment in everything he has to say. And, and that resentment has been boiling since 1968 when Donald Trump graduated from college. And one of the ruptures that occurred in 1968 was a kind of American complete agreement of always supporting American war policy. And there's a resentment uh, about the divisions that were created then over American militarism versus the McCarthy-Kennedy view of America's role in the world and the tension between those two things uh, has continued every day since then. That was a tension that didn't exist prior to 1968. There's a resentment about what happened in civil rights uh, and the collapse of segregation in the 1960s. There, there's, there are people who believe uh, that that shouldn't have gone the way it did, it shouldn't have gone with the speed that it did, a variety of things, and they certainly resent the way their world was trampled on in the progress of civil rights and desegregation. And there's a bunch of other uh, issues that developed over time, including abortion. All of those things, all of those energies, all those those negative resentments that were harnessed by the Trump campaign were all born in 1968 and are now very much in their maturity. As I was reading your book, I kept saying to myself, or I kept wondering, I wonder if Mr. O'Donnell is drawn to this aspect of what he's writing about, the clarity of it, 
the fact that there was a war candidate and a non-war candidate and their positions, their avowed positions. I mean, they had different ways they said they were going to end the war, but that was their positions. And things like the debate over the credentialing committee and the debate over party platforms, these were real debates. And the media would cover those debates and those debates had consequences. And who did well in a convention had consequences. And now we're in this era of this uh, this miasma, this ferocity where we don't even know the media tries to cover something and then maybe some tweets are going around it doing an end around on Twitter. You know, Nixon railed against the news, but there wasn't this animating force that people just flat out didn't agree or didn't think that Walter Cronkite was telling the truth. As crazy as it was, was there some sort of comfort to immerse yourself in a time with just more solid ground beneath your feet? Oh, what a great question. I can't tell you how delighted I was to spend the day in 1968 to be completely removed uh, from uh, Donald Trump and the activities that uh, we're going through now for most of the day. I, you know, I would write this book during the day and show up later than usual to do my show at night. And I would come in knowing absolutely nothing about what Trump tweeted today or said today. And boy, that was a wonderful feeling to uh, to live without any of that uh, static in, in the course of the day. But the thing that drew me to 1968 is very simply the drama. I'm a dramatist. It's the thing I've enjoyed most in my life. My favorite job was writing for the West Wing and other TV dramas. And and what I saw in 68 was a drama. I actually, the first germ of the idea was I simply, I, I wanted to write a movie about it. And in the job that I'm in now, as, as I was piling up the research to write the movie of 1968, I thought, no, I... I think I'll write the book. And, uh, and so really, and I, and I wrote it the way I would write a movie. I wrote it, uh, I tried to write it at the pace I would write a movie, and I tried to move it as fast as I could and zoom in on the most arresting characters in their most arresting moments. You talked about how McCarthy revealed himself to have more flaws. Did anyone you spent time with from this era turned out to be more heroic than you had imagined? Yeah, Teddy Kennedy played a bigger and more admirable role than I ever understood in uh, his brother's campaign and, very, very importantly, in the attempt to make peace between Gene McCarthy and Bobby Kennedy, who were both, once they got into it, the anti-war candidates. They were splitting the anti-war vote, and for the anti-war faction of the party to succeed, there was going to have to be one of them. And so Teddy, who was a very young man at the time, who no one thought was a serious player, turned out to be as invaluable to Bobby as Bobby was to Jack in the 1960 campaign. And the other big, big surprise for me was just how close Teddy Kennedy came during the 1968 convention to agreeing to have his name put in nomination. In Gene McCarthy's final and I think kind of wonderfully noble moment, he realizes he's not going to get the nomination. And he he says to one of the Kennedy men, I will absolutely stand aside for Ted Kennedy. I would not have done it for Bobby, but I will do it for Teddy. He liked Teddy better. And Gene McCarthy tried to make that happen, and it collapsed at the last minute. I had no idea that that convention drama came that close to a Kennedy nomination. And if that had happened, the possibility of Teddy Kennedy coming out of there with the nomination was very, very high. Playing with Fire, the 1968 election and the transformation of American politics. Author, Lawrence O'Donnell, MSNBC host. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. 
And now the spiel. Over the sound of a swirling helicopter, Marine One, Donald Trump gave an endorsement of Roy Moore. It was at least an endorsement to vote against his opponent. That's uh, Doug Jones, who Trump described as weak on crime. This despite the fact that Jones, a career prosecutor, tried and convicted four Klansmen who bombed a Birmingham church in 1963, justice finally delivered, though delayed. Now, when we say weak on crime, that usually means countenancing crime. It doesn't actually mean going out and being a one-man molestation ring, which seems to be going on in Alabama. When confronted with that issue, the president issued what historians will no doubt refer to as the... So, you know, doctrine. Mr. President, is an accused child molester better than a Democrat? Is an accused well, child molester it. better look, than a Democrat? Well, he denies it. Look, he denies it. I mean, if you look at what what is really going on and you look at all the things that have happened over the last 48 hours, he totally denies it. He says it didn't happen. And, you know, you have to listen to him also. You're talking about... He said 40 years ago, this did not happen. So, you know. So, you know, so, you know, isn't exactly a call to arms or a strenuous denouncement or a clarion call to really anything. It just means what it means and stuff. And that is why Sarah Huckabee Sanders trots out a different line of argumentation, if you could call it that, whenever someone brings up the fact that her boss faces quite a large number of accusations. And her answer to that question is my grrr argument of the week. When Cecilia Vega of ABC compared the allegations against Moore to the allegations against Al Franken to indeed the allegations against the president, here's what Sarah Huckabee Sanders said. Uh, I think in one case, specifically, uh, Senator Franken has admitted wrongdoing and the president hasn't. I think that's a very clear distinction. Well, that is true. Trump hasn't admitted it. Hasn't even, so you know it, calls everyone accusing him a liar. So until he admits it and takes responsibility, yes, that's right, until Donald Trump admits to being wrong and taking responsibility, the thing didn't happen, which is uh, how the president understands metaphysics. But I want to take issue with the first part of Sarah Huckabee's answer, and that in fact, is my grrr argument of the week. Look, I think that this was covered uh, pretty extensively during the campaign. Uh, we addressed that then. The American people, I think, spoke very loud and clear when they elected this president. But how is this- she says that the American people spoke very loud and clear when they elected this president. Now, this would be a bad argument, even if the president had actually won the vote of the American people. But let's recall, fun fact, he did not win that. Maybe it's a niggling point, but this is Sarah Huckabee Sanders' argument. It's let us use the presidential vote as an exact rendering of judgment on every issue in the election, not as, say, a weighing of options and believing that some promises outweigh some flaws, which is actually how people vote. Even if the premise that the vote tally is the perfect proxy for everything about the candidate, even if that's the premise, he lost the vote. Let's also note that 260 million Americans didn't vote for the president, right? That accounts everyone who didn't vote at all or couldn't vote. 
But it is true that of the 320 million Americans, 260 million did not give him the we believe you on the sexual assault stuff. Sure, 63 million Americans did, which Sarah Huckabee Sanders said is an exact endorsement of everything he ever did with a lady. But even though 63 million did, 66 million didn't. They voted against him. Because if voting for you means endorsing the idea that you didn't sexually assault anyone, more people voted for Hillary Clinton. And putting aside the fact that 3 million more people voted for Hillary Clinton, which in Sarah Huckabee's estimation means that 3 million more people think that Trump did sexually assault people. Let's remember, there are another 7 million voters out there who voted for the Libertarians or the Greens or Evan McMullen. So then... By the logic, hey, if they voted for you, they say you didn't sexually assault anyone. That means that 10 million more people who voted think he did. And of course, you can't vote if you're not 18. There are almost 20 million teenage girls in America under the age of 18. Yeah, I know when I said that, Roy Moore's ears just perked up. He's a big fan of the gist. How do you think those teens and tween girls are voting or thinking about Donald Trump? So if it's true that Donald Trump's sexual assault didn't happen because it didn't bother most Americans because if they did, they wouldn't have voted for him. Guess what? They didn't vote for him. And let's just, let's just play this out. Let's interrogate this some more, as Roy Moore supporters would say. What about the tactic during the campaign when Donald Trump trotted out all those women who claimed that Bill Clinton abused him, Right. What about the Clintons? It's not just me. That was his argument. Now, the point of that tactic was to neutralize the sexual harassment allegations. Now, by neutralize, what do we mean? We mean that they don't necessarily, voters don't necessarily say, well, now I believe Trump, but they say, I have to put this entire issue aside. It becomes an unactionable item to voters when they cast a ballot. I mean, he did that as a tactic because he thought it would have some salience. He thought it would play a little bit. And if that worked to any degree, the amount it worked further devalues looking at Trump's vote total as a clean bill of innocence. And this is what makes the grr argument of the week the grr argument of the week. Grr arguments are the ones that make it feel stupid for even engaging in them at the level they are asking to be engaged in. And this is what happens when you take a terrible Sarah Huckabee Sanders talking point at its face value, when you respect it enough to consider it as an argument worth considering rather than just as a piece of bullshit. Because if you give it the respect that it deserves, not only do you devalue the argument, you devalue yourself in the process. You have wasted your time for taking them seriously. And the troll presidency trolls on. And that's it for today's show. The Gist was produced by Pierre Bienname. He dismisses charges of Facebook selling our privacy or selling ads to the Russians or selling our souls because they have 2 billion active users worldwide. I think 2 billion active users means those issues have been settled. The Gist was also produced by Mary Wilson. And on the question of Millie Vanilli's auteurness, she would refer you to the pop charts of 1989. Girl, you know it's true. Six times platinum. The American record buyers have spoken. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcast, has a message for everyone who says the Dallas Cowboys are at best mediocre and are going to miss the playoffs. Guess what? They're first in the league in attendance. Number one. I don't think a mediocre team would be number one. Now, do you? The gist. Thank you for listening. We think we're a fine podcast. 
Of course, Bill O'Reilly's free podcast does rank ahead of us right now on iTunes, so I think the people have spoken. Oomperu, depru, dupru, and thanks for listening.